my wife can literally go to Sainsbury's and come back with four new friends. Um, you know, whereas I go to Sainsbury's and I just come back with, I don't even come back with what she's asked me to get. Jamaicans, uh, as a, as a, you know, again generalising, but you know, um, especially of my, my sort of parents' generations, so much more expressive. You know, um, you know, the highs are high, the lows are low. Um, you know, the singing is loud. The whole um, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs on the doors of accommodation. And so, you know, it is a real issue. They're, they're suddenly, it's, it's quite a shocking thing for me. Welcome to another bestsellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson. And today's guest is brilliant. The book is superb. I'll tell you about it in a minute. But first of all, shout out of the week to the far flung place where we didn't expect to be heard. Today goes to our one listener in South Korea. Hi. I feel like I should upgrade my chat here and learn how to say hi in all the different languages. That would be amazing. Have you got the time and the inclination? I've got the inclination. Uh, Yes. Okay. <laughs> can you make remember. the next one like Spain? So then I can just go hola. And then it can be France. And I know that one as well. And, and Italy. And then we're sorted. Well, I think we kind of anticipated we'd have expat community listeners in those parts. Mm -hmm. That's why it's places like South Korea that are intriguing. Yeah. Also, the way you said yes just there, that was just like you'd started Neighbours in the 90s. Yeah. Everything inflicted <laughs> up. Yeah. For sure. Making it I think all I, sound like a question. I think I did speak like that quite a lot when I was a teenager as well, which is probably attributed. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> did you, just while we're on it, because I've never asked you this, did you watch yeah. it at 1.30 on your lunch break and then watch it again at 5.35? Uh, Even no. though it was the same episode. Uh, no, not often. Occasionally, occasionally, because I think it was just sort of comforting, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, most of the times it was the tea time one with a bit of toast. Um, it's fine to admit this now because we're grown-ups. Weird Neighbours Crush? Uh, you know what? I don't actually know if I did have a Neighbours no, Crush. Not Paul Robinson. <laughs> not Steph and Dennis. Don't yeah. make you feel good. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I don't think so. No. And not Jason Donovan. Mm. I, think, I, think, like, I think I just liked the, the warm feeling of that show. Uh, yeah, bouncer. Obviously, I think mm. I, I think I used to identify. Was this Neighbours or Home and Away? Because I watched both of them. Plain Jane, Superbrain. That was Neighbours. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. me. <laughs> she says modestly. <laughs> wow, I had no idea you were that clever. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I hide it so well. Um, <laughs> who was who was your crush then? Uh, so weird. Neighbours crush Daphne. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you were 14, 15, Daphne was hot. Yeah, I'm sure probably still now. Yeah, I hope. We haven't done our research. Let's hope nothing bad's <laughs> happened to Daphne. Exactly. So th th we're still talking about books, right? <laughs> we are still talking about books, yeah. And uh, it's Mike Gale today, All the Lonely People, which um, we have to do a bit of counting on this, didn't we? Because um, even Mike didn't know what number book this was in, in the Mike Gale series, but we eventually got to 17. We did, and he's uh, such a generous person to chat to. I really enjoyed this one. Our guest today on Bestsellers is well known for making you feel good with his books. You read them, and life just feels better. And credit to him, because prior to recording this introduction for you, Mike just took his shoes and socks off so he could have a count of how many books he'd actually written because he'd lost track. <laughs> um, we're delighted to tell you that All the Lonely People is Mike's 17th book. And uh, Mike, welcome to Best Sellers. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm absolutely delighted. Thank you. Tell us, first of all, before we get into the specifics of this book, 
Um, it is what you're known for, isn't it? It's, it's what Beth O'Leary called uplit to us, uplifting literature. Is it tricky to stay in that world? I mean, you've been very smiley ever since the Zoom's been connected to you, but <laughs> do you have days where you think, oh, bloody hell, not another cheery story? <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think it's what we all need. I, 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 you know, it's, it's interesting to think about what, what sort of has attracted me to this, but it's about, I love taking characters on a, you know, quote-unquote journey. Yeah. I, I like them being in one place at the very beginning and then taking them through a whole set of situations and a whole set of emotions and then bringing them to the other end. And um, there's nothing quite like it. There's nothing quite like rooting for your characters, rooting for characters, characters that you want a happy ending for. And I think, you know, quite often when you feel a little bit, indifferent towards a novel it's because you know you don't feel anything for those characters and so you know one thing I, I try really you know when I'm thinking of my ideas is I'm trying to think okay I want a character I want to to create characters and situations where I feel like I'm 100% foot behind these characters and I, I want there is nothing more in the world that I want for them than to get their happy ending. Well, how do you do that, Mike? And how do you know when you've made them rounded enough that they stick? And these all do, by the way. I mean, I know these people really well in this book, or I feel like I do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Do you do you have do you create a list of traits? Do you run them by trusted sources? What, how does how do you know you've nailed it? That is a really good question. I, I suppose I because I I start with I tend to start with a question. Um, or something that I want to explore. And so, for, for instance, with, you know, all the lonely people, I was thinking specifically about loneliness. And I was thinking about a, a, a much bigger question of, of you know, we all, sort, we, we all sort of see lonely old people. But the question I was really interested in was, how do you, how do they become lonely? You know, they're not born lonely. And so I wanted to look at an entire lifetime and and to to sort of track where that loneliness kind of came in and how they became the people that they we meet as being lonely and I suppose that was where I started from with all the lonely people. Was there a particular trigger that one day made you think of that, or was it just something that had been brewing for a while? I think I think it was something that had been brewing for a while. I, I've been thinking about the 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 whole idea of loneliness and um, and it just seems something that's um, I mean it seemed relevant at the time, but it seems all the more relevant, um, you know, in, in post-COVID times. Yeah. But, um, at, the, at the time that I was thinking of the idea, I was thinking about loneliness and how acute it is and how we're sort of this sort of connected, we're, we're more connected than we've ever been. And yet at the same time, we're, we're much more lonely and disconnected in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. and, and especially the sort of older generations. And, um, and so that that's, was sort of my beginning, really. Do you find as well that as you've got older, so both Phil and I are, are in our 40s, and I think you, you, you can, you're trying to find those connections as well and try and work out, are we going to have a point as well where you can kind of see it already with some really close friends that I wish I would see more and then life gets busy or obviously nobody's particularly travelling much still at the moment anyway. But you can kind of see where those drop-offs happen and then how you kind of get back into people's lives somehow then becomes really awkward or difficult absolutely and and and, and you know without wanting to make massive generalizations I, I think it's actually a lot worse for for men because i think mm. women are much better at making connections with with other women and mm -hmm. um you know whether it, it's through interest groups or whether it's just through you know my, my wife can literally go to sainsbury's and come back with four new friends um <laughs> you know, whereas i go to sainsbury's and i just come back with i don't even come back with what she's asked me to yeah so, um, unexpected friend in bagging area <laughs> yeah but but um you, you know with with men and older men you know i, I think it's a you know I, I see it myself you know it i felt like you know i got to 30 and it was like the cut off right if you're not in my friend group by the time i'm 30 that's it i've got all the friends i've got and so when those people start dropping off you know um you know mates get move away or they stop coming out or whatever you you can suddenly find yourself in a situation where even though you you imagine that you were quite popular you suddenly haven't got any friends anymore and mm -hmm. trying to make new friends when you're older it is much it's really hard really hard 
um, especially when you're when you're an old man, you know, um, you know, my own dad, you know, um, just the I, I, I guarantee you if if I suggested to him to go to try and to go some sort of social group, he would just go, no, that is just mm-hmm. not happening. He's not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And so how do you get people who are so set in their ways back out and back and back up and being social? Because being we all need people. And I think mm-hmm. we can convince ourselves that we don't, but I think we all need those connections. And I think that's what happens here with Hubert. He, he's got himself to the place where he thinks that he doesn't need people, um, but actually he does. Well, even it's almost even a bit more... A bit worse than that. I think he's got himself to a place where he's made up some friends <laughs> to try and persuade his daughter that he's okay. His daughter's in Australia working, and he's made up this trio. Why <laughs> in my head were Rod, Jane, and Freddie? And, uh, <laughs> and he's yeah, convincing so, his daughter that he's having the best time in the world, but he hasn't seen a soul. Yeah. So, so basically, that that's the hook for the novel is that you've you've got this old guy, and he doesn't want his daughter. His daughter's living uh, in Australia, and he doesn't want her to worry about him. And so um, he's invented some friends um, that he goes out with and he does, he paints the sort of picture of the most amazing sort of social life, you know, the perfect retirement. He's going to shows, he's going to gardening centres. And so he tells his sister, sorry, he tells his daughter about this, um, these things in their weekly phone calls. But actually the truth is he's not seeing anyone from week to week and his longest conversation is with his cat. And so that, that's where we sort of find you at the very beginning of the book. And to go back to something you just said, you mentioned your own dad. What are yes. the similarities, if any? I mean, there might there might be none, but the similarities between Hubert and your dad. And also, it's interesting that the first person who bustles into Hubert's life is, is Ashley. Yeah, and you're just saying women make friends more easily than men. <laughs> well, my, my dad's in his my dad's in his eighties, and and Hubert is in his eighties, yeah. and my dad's from Jamaica, and so is Hubert. But I think that's probably where the sort of similarities end. Um, um, but yeah, Hubert, um, he's, he, he's a, a he was an outgoing person. I think I think that's the sort of secret of it. He was an outgoing person, but life has happened to him. And I think that's that's sort of where he is now. Um, and as far as Ashley goes, um, is what you saying is the question: Is there an Ashley in my life? Or no? I think it was. <laughs> I was just more interested that you'd chosen a female character to break down the door, if you like. Do you know what I mean? Oh right. Okay. Given yeah, that Huber, okay. again without spoilers, Huber's got this mate called Gus. Yes. And it's not Gus who's breaking down the door to Huber. It's this um, brand new neighbour called Ashley, who's a single parent. Well, I suppose what I want, really wanted to do, I wanted somebody who's going to be a foil to to um, to Hubert's initial curmudgeonliness. So, you know, um, it's, Ashley's this amazingly ebullient um, uh, Welsh single mum, and she talks very quickly, and he, she confuses him constantly. But um, there's, she's very persistent, and the thing about her is that she's lonely too. So she is a single mum. She's just uh, separated from a partner and so she is trying to make bonds and um, form connections with people and she just get, takes a liking to Hubert and refuses to to, to <laughs> I suppose to, to, to say no so you know when every time he pushes away she just comes back and eventually she wears him down and she actually is is the, the sort of um, you know his she makes a change in his life for, for the better, I think. She does. Um, and I think you've kind of talked yourself quite nicely into, into <laughs> reading a bit for us so we can get to hear from some of these characters. Which whereabouts do we need any more setup or so this is the, the very opening of the book, and this is where um uh, Hubert is just about to meet um Ashley, but um yes, we, we get a nice little look into Hubert's world. Moments before Hubert met Ashley for the first time. He'd been settled on his favourite armchair, puss curled up in his lap, waiting for Rose to call, when a doorbell rang and he gave a touch of annoyance, wagering that it was one of those damn courier people who were always trying to make him take him parcels for his neighbours. Would you mind accepting this for number 63, they would ask. Yes, me mind a great deal, he would snap. Now clear off. And then he would slam the door shut in their faces. As he shifted puss from his lap and stood up to answer the door, Hubert muttered angrily to himself, Passes, passes, every day, all day for people who are never in to receive the damn things. If people want them so much, why not, not just buy them from the shops like everyone else? 
with words of scathing condemnation loaded and ready to fire, Hubert unlocked the front door and flung it open, only to discover that the person before him wasn't anything like he'd been expecting. Instead of a uniform parcel courier, there stood a young woman with short dyed blonde hair. In a nod towards the recent spell of unseasonably warm April weather, she was wearing a pink vest top, cut off jeans and pink flip flops. Holding her hand was a small child, a girl with blonde hair, also wearing pink, a pink top, shorts and pink flip flops. The young woman smiled. Hi there, I'm not disturbing you, am I? I think that's my favourite reading of, of the series, yeah. You're, you're rivaling Linda LaPlante for doing the voices, Mike, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's the weird thing, when, when, you're, when you're writing characters and situations, you, you never really think about the day that you're going to have to read them out for yourself. And so quite often it's not until you, the first time you do, you're standing in public doing a reading, that you realise, oh, I suddenly got to do the voices <laughs> or yeah. declare that I'm not doing the voices. But um, no, it, it's good for that. It was funny when you were just talking before then about loneliness and uh, how Hubert talks to his cat, which just has the name Puss. I also love that it doesn't have any other name other than that. Um, it randomly took me to like a flashback of me aged probably about... 14, 15, when I would talk to my cat all the time. <laughs> and I just don't know if there's like some weird parallel as well between, again, with sort of this sort of idea of loneliness. And, you know, if I think to myself as a teenager, I had a ton of friends and, yeah. you know, I liked loads of people at school, but I can remember feeling so lonely sometimes, so lonely. And I just think it's such a, it, it's talked about more, but I just don't know what it is about loneliness somehow where there's kind of a, a shame attached to it somehow if you admit yeah. that you're lonely and was that a sense that you wanted to get across in the book as well absolutely you know I think the thing is you know you're, you're I suppose you're comparing yourself to everyone else and so mm. when people have got families you know they've got that sort of connection and so the, the people for instance in Covid who really suffered are the people who haven't got families uh, or, or, or living on their own and so that it's almost like there's a stigma attached because for the people who've got families they've got they've got that connection to people they've been living in in uh, a home with other people and and so they sort of have that interaction so but for those who are alone it just suddenly brings them you know it makes them think oh actually I am really alone in this world and there are people who have those connections and I don't have them and so it can feel quite shameful sometimes and um you know but the nice thing is is that we're, we're talking about these things more often and um you know there are there are lots of nice things that have sort of come out of the, the whole Covid thing with people having people who've been living alone having Zooms together and mm -hmm. um you know, there's that lovely thing that goes on at Christmas. People who are having lonely Christmases, they're all getting together. So, you know, yes, it's yes, it's bad, and it, and it, but I think it's getting better. And I, I just love the sense that people are realizing this, and they're, they're realizing that there are more ways of getting people together, and you know, overcoming it. And it doesn't have to be a, um, a stigma. You know, quite often we're alone for, for no through for no, through no fault of our own it's just the way that things are um and but i, I think it, it is difficult though because you know we all want a connection to other people um but sometimes i suppose we're just i suppose it is it, we can just feel a little bit we need more of a nudge i suppose mm -hmm. to kind of make us put us out there but you know what's um, i find interesting about this and natalie you and i were discussing this on the phone weren't we just before we came mm. on to speak to mike but there's a difference between being lonely and being alone yes and i've been both and they're not mutually exclusive if that makes sense yeah yes and I yeah. think that's why it's difficult to, to then say, well, what's the solution? Because I wonder if sometimes loneliness is much more of a state of mind than a state of physical being. You know, you could go off to a club or a society and be around 10 people and still feel lonely, couldn't you? Yes, yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a matter of, um, you know, choice as well. You know, that there's that idea of, you know, some people like their own company, but... And that and that's absolutely fine. But it's it's the question of if I wanted to go out tomorrow, if I wanted to go to the cinema or do an activity with someone, have I actually got someone who would go with me? Mm -hmm. and, you know that that's the sort of difference, I suppose. You know, you can do everything alone and be happy doing that. But if you want connection, is it there? And um, you know, for for 
some of the characters in the book, I think I think it's not there. You know, they are alone, and um, and like you say, I suppose it, it's um, it, it can be a sort of state of mind thing because you know some, sometimes once you're alone, you will actively push people away because you don't want to admit that you're actually alone. And so, and once you people, you do push people away, it then becomes easier to become alone. So it's almost, it becomes yeah. a sort of spiraling thing. It does. I also think as well that, um, again, this is probably a sign of my age too, but sometimes you you meet some people and they're just really horrible, <laughs> you know, whether they're like parents at school or, yes. or people that somehow get into your kind of circle. And then you have to make a decision of actually, do I want to not enjoy being with them and not be part of that group? Or am I better off being by myself? And I tend to, <laughs> I tend to opt Is this to a like... throwback or a reference to you leaving the school WhatsApp group? <laughs> yeah, did you see that? Yeah, I, I left the school that, yeah. WhatsApp group at the weekend. I just could not deal with the negativity anymore <laughs> from some uh, factions in there. And it was just, it was just stressful and tense. So yeah, I'm now out of that group. <laughs> and actually I feel way better. <laughs> Um, those things I think yeah yeah are you in any uh, school parents whatsapp groups uh, no <laughs> like... no 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 I, I I opted out of all of that um and yeah passed that responsibility over to my wife so she's the one who gets the notifications you know what that's uh, yeah, just my... on that that's interesting about technology though isn't it and loneliness do you know what I mean we've got all these whatsapp groups now and we've insta you've got twitter uh, you said a few moments ago Mike more ways to be connected than ever and yet people are being more vocal about feeling lonely so the technology is not helping it's not filling a void is it no no it, it's not and also that you know when you you know especially with um Hubert's generation you, you've got not everybody is on the internet you know there's this massive assumption that everybody is on the internet they've all got phones and you know mobile phones and computers and stuff and there's a whole generation of people who haven't got any of that at all and even if they did have that it, it's no replacement for what they really want which is people who know them and they can feel some sort of sense of community with, and you, yeah. you know, so, um, you know, my, my dad, for instance, um, will, will, he regularly will go to the same supermarket and go to the same checkouts because he feels connection with the particular checkout people. You know, yeah. you know it, it, yeah, yeah. they know me and, you know, they have a little bit of chat and they can talk a little bit about family. And so, you know, we are constantly looking for connection and community and and we can find it but it does take it does mean that we do have to be brave yeah you do and there was a quote that I that really struck me when I was reading your book as well that I wanted to ask you about and that comes quite early on in the book uh when it is so Hubert he's describing when he first comes over to the UK and doesn't have a particularly pleasant time Mm. in his first uh place of employment um to put it mildly, uh, but he writes, uh, he sort of, this kind of comes in between these passages. So this is written sort of in the now, if you like, but it says, uh, while Hubert couldn't easily recall the last time he'd been the victim of racism, that didn't mean it hadn't happened. These days, like smoking in public, racism was less socially acceptable than it used to be and therefore more subtle. I think you're kind of so smart, obviously, in how you put that across. but I also love that this isn't a book about racism. It's just one strand of Hubert's life. It's much yeah. more about loneliness and family. But of course, you still needed to reflect that in the book. And, and I assume that's something you were keen to do through Hubert. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean you know, um, Hubert's experience, you know, he arrives in, in England in 1958, I think it is, the late 50s at least. Mm. And... Um, it's not at all what he's expecting because, you know, and I've talked spoken to my parents about this, you know, they were, as, as part of the West Indies, were part of the Commonwealth. Um, the, the whole education system was, a, was an English um, education system. So they were reading, you know, it was all based on stuff that was happening in England and, you know, the, the sort of authors and things like that. And so, and they'd been very much from the top down have been told, you know, the Commonwealth is, you know, you are all British. Mm-hmm. And what Hubert gradually discovers when he actually comes to England is that um, is that it's not true. <laughs> you know, um, no. he has been made to feel British and, you know, they all you know, they talk about the mother country and things like that. And yet when they arrive at Britain's behest, let's not forget. So Britain, mm-hmm. 
This is post-war Britain. Uh, there's a labour shortage. They're asking the Commonwealth to come and help out the mother country. And actually, the people, lots of the people who, who um, they meet don't want them there. Mm. They think that they're taking away their jobs. They don't like these strangers coming in with their strange ways. Um, and, and sometimes the, the, the racism is, is outright, that the whole um, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs on the, on the, um, on the wall of accommodation, I mean, on the doors of accommodation. Um, and so, you know, it, it, is a real, it is a real issue. They're, they're suddenly, it's, it's quite a shocking thing for him. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I suppose they've, they've come for a better life. And that's what I really like about Hubert is this determination to, to make a better life for himself. And so um, it, it's not just about taking the money and, and, and running, but rather I'm here to establish myself and make a better life. And he, he does so regardless of what goes on around him and, and, and you know he becomes um you know he has to face it all the way through and what's interesting is that when he meets his wife who's um english you know she suddenly has to see life through his eyes because because once they have a child people look at her differently and she loses her family through it and, and things like that and so it, it's it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually one of the things that um, an early reviewer wrote which is that it's quite an eye-opener if you've not been part of that that story just to realize or just to think what it must be like to have faced that sort of hostility and yet still be here you know that that that's the yeah. thing and so when you meet when you you know you when you meet Hubert now yes he might say that that racism racism isn't as bad as it as it as it was but he's a product of that so you know when people, you know, when you when you you meet Hubert now and you think about, you know, he isn't just thinking about how people are now, but he's also thinking about how people have been in the past to him, and that's also going to make things difficult for him when he wants to join, uh, say, a, an OAP club because there's always going to be a part of him that's worried about rejection, I suppose. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And um, was there, I wondered if this was just my interpretation of it, but the, the place of employment where Hubert, Hubert works that are particularly mean to him, but it's also where he meets his, his future wife is called Hamilton's. Yeah. And I wondered if that was any link to the musical. <laughs> musical. <laughs> A little subtle in layer. <laughs> oh, now you say, I should say yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I was just looking for, um, I was looking for the name of a department store and it, I needed something that sort of sounded like it might be a department store and that was the best I could come up with. So, yeah. Although, this like, you sit in, in my head, it adds like, yeah. As, as a fellow Brummie Mike, I had Rackhams in my head. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the whole idea. It's the whole Rackhams, Selfridges, John Lewis type thing. Yes, yeah. But a, a sort of, um, but he's, you know, when, when Hubert's working, um, at this department store, he's in the backstage, so he's working in the warehouse, so he's not going to be seen in the front stage. And there was something about those sort of um, department stores, especially in the sort of forties and fifties, where they were. It was very much a sort of theatrical thing, you know. Once the doors were open, you know, everybody who worked in the front were the front stage, and they were very presentable, you know. And then backstage, it's it's completely different, and it doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from. But Hubert. I, I suppose, you know, would never be front stage because he would just wouldn't have been allowed to be. Um, I've got another quote I want to put to you. Um, and it, it references one of the words you just used, actually, about, about the mother country. And um, I don't want to give too much away about where this is. this quote comes from in the story, so as not to spoil the story, but it's a thought on English reserve, really, which amused me. Uh, <laughs> maybe it was the English themselves that were the problem. Their reserve, their fear of emotion, as though to express any, even at a time like this, would be shameful somehow. For the first time in his life, Hubert felt sorry for them, the people of the mother country, the people who didn't know how to feel. Yes. And I wondered what your view was of, of that as a, as a theory of, of English people and whether you feel it yourself or whether you see it in other people or whether it was handed down to you, perhaps, say, from your parents' generation who spotted it first. Where's that come from? Well, I suppose it's an interesting thing just, just because um, Jamaicans, uh, as, a, as a, you know, again, generalising, mm. but, you know, um, 
especially with my, my sort of parents' generations, so much more expressive, you know. Um, you know, the highs are high, the lows are low, um, you know, the singing is loud. And um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's so much more bold, I suppose, what I'm trying to say. And then they come, you know, this, this generation kind of arrives in England and it, it's... You know, it's an, they've been painting this picture of that. They've had this picture painted in the head of Buckingham Palace and countryside and and all these other amazing things that they've heard of. And then when they arrive, they sort of see smokestacks and it's grey and it's raining, <laughs> and that the people themselves, are, you know, are very reserved and keep themselves to themselves. And you know, they they it's almost. Um, they must feel ashamed to say hello or good morning. Um, and so there's this contrast of worlds. And I suppose that's what I was trying to get at there. That Hubert is, is sort of thinking of his life in Jamaica and how, while they might not have had much, they seem to enjoy life that much more. Mm. And then when it comes to England, you know, they seem to have so much more and yet seem to enjoy themselves quite a lot less. And so it's it's a it's a view from his point of view. Mm. Because the first time I noticed it was when I, I moved to London to work in the late nineties, and yeah. I was—I could not believe that you would have. So imagine me and you, Mike, were stood on the platform waiting for the tube, and we'd be yattering away. But the minute the tube doors open, we'd clamber on and we'd stop talking. <laughs> and I thought, what is it about the tube that makes all these British people just stop talking to each other? It really flummoxed me completely. Well, again, it, it, but it's a very London thing because I, th- I think London, Londoners sort of stick to themselves. It, every, everybody's in their own world. And in, especially during travelling, you, you know, it, it's just like we've got a newspaper, we've got a book, we've got our phones, we've got our headphones in. We are not interacting with each other because we, I suppose it's like an individual bubble, isn't it? We're all just going around in our bubbles and it's not really, a, you know, it's not until you go further up north that you sort of get people having actual conversations with strangers. And even then, you know, it's... You know, um, I remember uh, one time I got the train from Birmingham going down to London and um, the woman opposite me um, just started having, we just started having a conversation and we ended up talking the entire journey. And in my head, it, it was quite interesting what was going on with it. In my head, I just thought, oh, right, okay, she wants to talk. Hmm. Right, it'll be like a three-minute thing. <laughs> and, then, and then the longer it went on, I just thought, Right, okay, she's really committing to this. Do I want to commit to this? Shall I put my headphones on? Shall I sort of do some sort of signal? Right, I'm going to the loo now. But then I just thought, well, actually, no, let's have this conversation. And it was really nice. You know, I've never seen her again. I don't know anything about her. Well, I know lots about her. Um, yeah. She told me. <laughs> um, but it, it, again, it, it, but you, you wouldn't have that sort of conversation on the tube, would you? No. It's not what you do. It's not, not the London way. No. It's not necessarily a good thing. Although I kind of, I often find myself giggling on the tube, not that I've been on the tube for a long time now, but when, when it gets really quiet in the tube and then somebody will kind of break it with something and then, yeah, I don't know, we're funny creatures, really funny creatures. And- <laughs> Best is, is when uh, you, you get a busker coming along or someone uh, coming along begging and then suddenly you just think, you know, everyone just goes, shut us down. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what you, someone could be singing, someone could be breakdancing, going, no, I'm not going to look at you. I'm not going to give you what you want. I am right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm the world's worst liar, so I will make eye contact and smile or like give money or not, depending on the situation. And yeah, I don't miss some of those awkward interactions, <laughs> I must say. And I wanted to ask, it's the obvious one about the title of your book. I assume yeah. it comes from Eleanor Rigby? Um, yeah, I, I suppose, but it's... Um... Which is never referenced in the book, by the no, way, no, either. No, no, so I'm just adding these other layers, um, like my Hamilton layer. <laughs> I suppose it was just, it was the working title I had. Mm. And it just seemed to fit the, the, the scope of the novel and what I wanted to say about the novel. And then when I sent it, sent it in to my publishers, um, they went, oh, yeah, we, we love the book. Not sure about the title. We're going to go away, and they, they came out and they had all sorts of meetings about the title. And then it was been about two months later, they came back and went, "You're going to hate this, but we love the title, the original title." And so we came back to this, this, this title, and it just sort of sums up, I suppose. Um, yeah, like like I say, 
what the novel's about and about people coming together and also just about the the, the fact that loneliness is everywhere in every strata it's not just you know it's not just age related it, it's and it's not just class just social class related and it's not race related it's it's just every everywhere and I, I i just i like that sense of it being it, that it captures the fact that it's it's just out there and we need to sort of bring these people together so when they said they didn't initially like that title did you ask them if they'd read it uh, yes no, they don't <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think it's one of the things that you've done the most clever in this book is yeah. that, uh, you know, it's called All the Lonely People, but I would put the emphasis on the word all. all. Yes. And, and what you've done is you've picked people from all sorts of different life dynamics. But what, the one thing they have in common is this feeling of, of loneliness, of not being able to link with anybody. And that's a bit that's cleverest because, again, when Natalie and I were talking just before we came and talked to you, Mike, you know, I said, I said, oh, I've really felt for people in lockdown who maybe have been in new relationships, so they've just started yeah. going out with each other, and all of a sudden they can't see each other because they're in different households. And that's I know of a couple of couples where it's forced them to go, well, let's just live with each other then. And that, you know, it comes with a different pressure. And Natalie said, yeah, but you can also be in a family and be lonely. And I thought, yeah, actually, you can be anyone and be lonely. And all the lonely yeah. people, it's such a perfect title for that. And when your publisher turn around and workshop it for two months and then come back to you and take your title, does that not really get on your tit? No, I, I think it's, it's one of those situations where I, I think, you know, they've, they've got, a, a, you know, your title, the title of your book is one of your, along with the cover, is a marketing tool. Yeah. And so... You know, you're, you're, I suppose there's a sense of you want something that sort of speaks to everybody, and you know, quite often. And it, and it, to be to be fair to them, I think it's quite often um, there might be initial reservations, and then people will try and come up with something better. But to be fair to them, they then come back and say, actually, we couldn't come up with anything better. So um, they, they, I, I think it, it's it's sort of. Um, Sometimes I think because they're thinking about they've got a different agenda to just, I suppose, speaking the truth of the, the actual novel, but thinking about it in terms of does this send out the right message? What market is it speaking to? Is it going to make those right connections with with um, with readers? Um, and so I suppose what they're really saying is, OK, can we have a little think about it? Um, we've had a little think about it. And yes, you were right in the first place. And <laughs> it, Which is very much the Brian time. Clough way, isn't it, Mike? That's what <laughs> Brian Clough used to manage his players. Team, <laughs> <laughs> he used to say, yeah, come and see me in the office. We'll have a chat about it and then we'll agree I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> but just on that, where you've been positioned and the marketing of your books, because I guess for a long time, you've probably been in that chick lit yeah. world and I know people have various thoughts about Chicklet. Um, at this point I should also stress that the sort of whole ethos behind Phil and I doing this podcast is that we want to dispel any snobbery around yeah. books and book genres and I'm a huge lover of popular culture in all its forms and mm -hmm. and I get genuinely angry when people are dismissive of things that are somehow viewed as lesser because they're not high art or whatever preconceptions people wrongly have yeah, in my opinion. Said. Absolutely. Yeah. But um, with with how you get positioned and the labels that get put on you, have you always been comfortable with that, or is it something that you feel you need to ever fight against? Well, the thing is, because I've, I started out in my, my career as um, working in teen journalism, mm. and um, you know, so I used to work for Just Seventeen. I used to work um, for Top of the Pops magazine. I used to review pop singles. I used to, you know, interview Take That and E Seventeen and stuff. So I'm a huge fan of popular culture, mm. and you know, when I was writing, you know, I, I've written. You know, when I was writing for Just Seventeen, you know, explaining the mindset of teenage boys to teenage uh, of, of teenage boys to teenage girls, I, I was always aware of the fact that you won't get a harder audience to engage with than a teenage girl. You know, mm -hmm. a teenage girl isn't going to read a two thousand word uh, article about you know um, European federalism in the Guardian. You know. <laughs> Whereas, um, because you ha if they don't like something that you've written, they will just turn over the page. So you have to be really engaging. And all my favourite writers all started out on, on Team Magazine. So, you know, people, um, I just think, uh, uh, people like uh, Miranda Sawyer started in Team Journalism. Mm -hmm. um, William Shaw started in turn, um, uh, uh, Team Journalism. Um, 
and loads, loads, countless others. And I was always wanting to write something that was entertaining. That was my, my above all, be all and end all. It had to be entertaining. And so when I, my, the books that I wrote to begin with were, were a natural progression of what I was writing about for teams, I suppose. Was it in a sense I was writing about the mindset of young men? And so, you know, my, my first book, My Legend of Girlfriend, was about a guy who couldn't get over his ex-girlfriend. And that was just a, a natural progression of what I was writing. But as time's got old, you know, as I've got older and I've continued writing, I wanted to explore different things, I suppose. And so I started out with the sort of getting together early parts of relationships. And then, uh, you know, I ended up, you know, I, I moved on to sort of less comedy, more, less reliance on comedy, I suppose, and more things that are more dramatic, I suppose, because that was just something, you you know, you're always wanting to kind of push your boundaries a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I suppose it, it, it's been probably since, um, let me think, it's probably been since, um, I forget the name of my titles of my books, uh, <laughs> Hope Family Calendar. Um, so probably the last three or four books that they've taken another turn again where it's they become even more dramatic but also still retaining that sort of funniness but also being uplifting at the same time so it's it's a real place it's quite hard to pigeonhole you know you could call it uplift if you want to um but I think these are just stories about people um and they're about people going through difficult times and I think when people pick them up it's because what I hope they get from them is it is a sense that um you know yes life is difficult but equally yes we can get through this I think that's what I really want from yeah you know what's really interesting, Mike, about what you've just said, and Nat, I don't know yeah. if this chimed with you, but um, David Nichols said the same thing to us on this podcast, didn't he? He said that start of a 10 was too gag heavy. And yeah. that if you wrote yeah. that again now, you'd strip some of those gags out of it. And yet again, Sweet Sorrow, which is his latest book, is still really funny. We both yeah. thought. Yeah. Uh, so and it's interesting that you feel you've gone down the same route of maybe not putting yeah. the emphasis on the on the funny but yet this book is still Hubert still makes me laugh in this book oh yeah, yeah. yeah ab- absolutely and, and I think um I think it's a confidence thing I think that the, the when you're an emerging writer the you're you want a response <laughs> you know more than anything isn't it? it it's like trying to do a stand-up gig and no one laughing yeah. you know um you you want a response and you know that an easiest way to get a response is to make someone laugh but i think as time goes on you, and you become more confident you know you realize that actually there are more ways of engaging your reader that don't aren't just reliant on humor and even when there is humor um it, it, it's sort of less gag heavy and more situational i suppose and so um there are some really beautiful moments of humor in there but they're not gags if you see what i mean um and also what I really love about where the books are currently is, is that all my, my writing is currently, is that you get this beautiful juxtaposition between these highs and lows. And so you can have someone laughing one minute and then crying the next. And it's those highs and lows that I sort of create this wonderful feeling in readers where they are really engaged because their emotions are all over the place. Mm. Yeah, and it's, I think it's um, the term page turner is often applied to thrillers, but I would say, argue very heavily that All the Lonely People is a page turner because there are quite a few moments where, again, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but something happens and it took my breath away and it just makes you want to read on to see how we got to that point. Um, and again, it's, it's just such a clever way of writing. Um, and I know that both Phil and I are also quite obsessed with how people write and what yeah. comes first. And do you write chronologically? What's your process in that sense? Um, I'm a chronological writer. I, I, I always have been, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a planner. So, um, uh, and I, I, well, actually, to begin with, in the very early days, in my literature, when I wrote my literature girlfriend, I had no plan. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and then kind of eventually got to the end. Um, and it wasn't until um, I wrote um, my book, Turning 40, or the first draft of what was going to be Turning 40, um, that I started to plan, because that was the first draft of Turning 40. It was the first time that I'd written a complete book and then had to bin it. 
Mm. And that was where um, it was a very big learning point for me because that was the last time that I didn't plan a book because I realised once I'd written this draft and spent a year writing it, that had I planned this book out, I would have been able to see why it wasn't working. But instead, because I didn't, um, because I didn't plan, I was doing all my working out while I was writing it. And it wasn't until the end that I realised that I'd written completely the wrong book. And it was a real, it was a real shock. And it was more shocking to realise that had I sat down with a piece of paper and a pen and sketched out a general plot, um, I would have realised that this book was never going to work. And so I ended up having to plan an entirely new book with entirely new, same characters, but mm. different situation. And from then on, I, I, I've become a planner. And so I plan, plan, plan to the nth degree. And so not only do I plan, do I know what happens in the beginning, middle and end, but I also know what happens in each chapter, in the beginning, middle and end of each chapter as well. And because of that, that's why... I feel like the books are really, really page turning because I've designed them that way. You know, mm-hmm. how long does that design take, process take, Mike? It takes me, I, I would say, it could take anything upwards of a month to three months of just, just planning, structural right, planning, right, not writing anything. Planning, yeah, because a lot of that is, and it sounds like a long time, but what I really like about it is um, before, prior to this, so if you don't plan, when you sit down and you start writing and you, you're, you know, and you're thinking about your characters, uh, you know, you're, you're right about this character and you'll think, well, uh, Jonathan stormed into the room. And you think to yourself, why is Jonathan stormed into the room? I don't know who Jonathan is. What does Jonathan want? Where is Jonathan going? Where is this room? You don't know any of those, the answer to any of those questions. But if you've done your planning, you know who Jonathan is, you know what he wants, you know where the room is, you know where the room, you know, uh, what other rooms he's been in, you, you know, you know your characters before you sit down. So what it means is if you've done your planning properly, once you sit down, you know who your characters are, you know where you're going. I describe it as a, it's a bit like a roadmap. You know, it's a bit like going, the difference between going, uh, I want to go to Scotland and Scotland's somewhere over there and or going, I want to go to Scotland, I'm going to get a map and follow the route. And mm. so in planning, what you're doing is you're setting out a route. And it doesn't mean that you can't take detours, but it just means yeah. you always know where you're going. It really makes me smile because um, I am a fledgling writer uh, in the novel sense. And um, when I first started to write, I really struggled with like jumping into scenes. Yeah. <laughs> I'd always have to have people coming into a room or leaving a room, which you never like, <laughs> you don't need to do that at all. But it, exactly as you were saying, it was like, well, I, I don't know where they're, I don't know where they're going. So I just have to make them leave. <laughs> like, this is so bad. This is so bad. <laughs> Um, so I appreciate and I can understand why taking one to three months is um, is a valuable use of time to do that. Um, I wondered out of your back catalogue of 16, 17 books, uh, if there is, is it consistently a book that readers get in contact with you that have really touched them or how much engagement you have with people throughout all those different books still coming to you and discovering them anew? It, it's, it's, it's really, um, it's, it's amazing actually. Every time you you think... You know, I remember when I wrote My Little Girlfriend, I remember thinking to myself, you know, uh, I remember, in fact, a moment with my agent, I was in the back of a cab and my um, agent, I was going to meet my publishers for the first time. And my agent said to me, um, OK, um, you're going to meet your publishers and um, they're going to ask you about your second book. Have you got any ideas? And I remember thinking to myself, second book? This is everything I have to say about everything. There is no more. And um, you know, here I am, 16, 17 books later. And you can't you kind of think to yourself, but every time every book you kind of just think, this is it. I poured my whole self into this. There is no more. Um, and then you 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 know, then you find out actually there is. But what I'm always amazed at is that how different books connect with different people. So there are people who for whom my legendary girlfriend um has a special place in their heart because of a particular time or a particular period um you know i, I remember uh, a, a girl wrote to me um using actual paper and pen which tells me how long ago this was um saying that you know how much she enjoyed my legendary girlfriend and um mainly because it she um she said that she the the legendary girlfriend of the title um who is 
Will's ex-girlfriend. Um, she said that she had a boyfriend who put her on a, a similar sort of pedestal. And uh, she said that she bought him a copy of the book, hopefully um, uh, in the intention that, you know, he would <laughs> continue to keep her on a, that pedestal, uh, even though she didn't actually want to. So it's, um, you know, when you, when you, especially when you have a long career, you, you kind of just think, I, I can't keep connecting to people in this way. But this book is really, uh, you know, manager girlfriend is connected with people, um, um, half a world away um, my, my most recent book was just the letters that I've had about it um, have just been amazing people who've connected to all sorts of elements of the story and so it, it's strange you, every time you kind of just think well surely I'm just speaking to the same people mm. you're, you're constantly this is what I suppose I, I, I love about books is that you don't know who it's going to connect with and, and why or how so you're mm-hmm. almost like you're just throwing you're, you're right you spend a year on your own in a room very much like this um <laughs> and you think to yourself you know with no idea of who's going to read it and you're pouring your heart and soul into this story and then you, you put it out into the world and you don't know how it's going to connect with people so you know i've, I've lost count of people who have just um they found one of my books on, you know, they've gone on holiday. Do you remember those? Um, they've gone on <laughs> holiday and um, they, the, the holiday place has got some sort of bookcase of holiday books. They just picked mine up and that's made them a lifelong committed fan from reading that. Oh, brilliant. Equally, there were people in the early days who might have, um, you know, who had books bought for them by friends who said, you've got to read this. <laughs> and then they've gone and then they become convertees. Um, and... Every, you know, even with all the lonely people now, um, you know, or, or with um, half a world away, you know, there are people go, this is amazing. This is the first time I've read you. I need now need to read everything you've done. And you kind of think, wow, how, you know, I'm not even, I've done that. I've not, you know, um, there are, there are people, I'm always really shocked um, to discover that there are people who have recently read my entire back catalogue and probably have a better idea of how my writing writing has changed than I do because you know <laughs> there are some books I haven't read in, in the best part of 20 odd years so it's mm. yeah it's, it's amazing oh well I, I bought Half a World Away this morning oh, um, thank you. because I haven't read that one so <laughs> that's going to be my next read too you'll love it you'll absolutely love it <laughs> right, just a couple of quickies from me before we wrap things up Mike first of all um Congoline I want to oh, ask yes. you about Congoline right? because <laughs> I, I, I confess I'd never heard of it, and it sounds excruciating. And this is what <laughs> it's what Hubert and Goss used to style their hair. Is, is it a real thing? And did it really burn scalps in the way you describe? Yes, it is. Yes. So, um, so congoline is is basically a, a hair straightener for um, West Indian hair or uh, African hair, if you want. And um, it was a it was a hair straighteners where, where basically they're just very very cool they certainly were back then very very caustic uh, chemicals um but equally at the same time there were there were people like harry belafonte and of course um who's the one that he's trying to look like he's trying to look like that can cole Nat and Colt used to um, straighten their hair mm. and make a quiff. And so uh, Hubert, because uh, he's got an eye on a particular lady, decides to straighten his hair. And so, um, but I just, I just love that, that idea of the things that you will do to try and attract a mate. And yeah. so, um, you know, Hubert putting up with this sort of uh, pain in the hope that it will make him look like Nat King Cole just seemed a very saucy moment. <laughs> but had you, had you used it in your in younger oh, life? No, no, not at all. No, no. How did I've you find that about its effect? How did you know about it? Um, I, I googled it actually. Oh right, okay. So I, I, I did. I, I had to work out because I knew that um, Nat King Cole strained his hair at, at various points in his, his career. So I just looked up. I found the stuff, and then I found more people sort of talking about it and how caustic it was and, and yet people would genuinely lose chunks of hair um in the process yeah. but you know that's that's what, people <laughs> what you do to impress the other thing i wanted just to quickly ask you about is um and again there's no spoiler in this because we we know that joyce becomes hubert's wife quite early on yeah. in the story yeah. but you describe the first kiss they share and i just thought this was the most beautiful line Thank you. Uh, it was a kiss that didn't so much say goodbye as hello 
And I just wanted to ask you how long it takes for you to, did you write about seven or eight different versions before you got to that line? Because writing those moments without them being cheesy, but being beautiful, I would imagine to be very difficult. Well, sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't because sometimes, you know, because I've spent so long with these characters before I write a single word, I know who they are a little bit more. Um, and But you, you're, you're right, when, with, with moments like that, you, you sort of want to get them right. And I suppose it, it was the context, because I knew the entire context of the this kiss and the fact that it, it's going to take them over a lifetime, it just seemed really suiting that, actually what you're referring to isn't just the kiss, but also the lifetime that they're going to spend together within the scope of the novel. And, and so it just seems to be the, the, the right line. And, and sometimes you get that right line, for, you get it right as soon as you do it. Mm. But then there are, you know, but sometimes it might not until be the second or third draft that you kind of go, oh, actually here's, if we change that to this, then suddenly you get you get this sort of echo of this the scope of the novel this this thing this this kiss this moment is going to expand um, across time and generations and, and all sorts of things and yeah and and that's a really special moment and you know it as soon as you write a line like that you know you go yes <laughs> <laughs> that you kind of go into the kitchen like i'm gonna have a beer i've just yeah, written something like, that's so good like, yeah that's what you're trying to do you're, you're always trying to make these connections between what is happening in in terms of the plot but also the wider scope of the novel in terms of the themes and um and you know the the, the just the, the rest of it and so when you do get something that sort of does both things it's just like mm, yes <laughs> um so just before we get your recommendations mike what are you writing at the moment do we find you in the middle of a process are you planning are you writing some killer lines like that right now <laughs> so at the minute i am writing oh let me think about it uh so if 17 so i'm working on book 18 <gasps> um and um it is called uh, I, I won't tell you what it's called because it, just in case the title changes <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us in two months once they've workshopped it and come back to you with your turn <laughs> <laughs> but um this is, I, I started work on this back in September and um, I, I was going good guns with it. And then of course, lockdown happened. And it, it's, it's, it's actually been a very, very difficult process. I, I thought it would be a lot easier because nothing essentially has changed for me in terms of lockdown mm. and, and writing because I'm still working from home. But, you know, we have had a global pandemic and we, we were looking at, you know, for a little while, what looked like the end of the world. And so it, it did become quite difficult to write for a short period. And so, um, and I know it's similarly with other writer friends, um, they have found it quite difficult, whether it's just being your family, being around more, or just being a bit more distracted. And so it, it, it's, been a, it's been a difficult writing process, I, I, I will say this, but I, I feel like I've broken the back of it now and things are going well, but, um, Yes, it, it's not been an easy year. It's not been an easy year at all. Is that because you kind of felt like the themes didn't feel as relevant now? or No, I, I think it was just trying to get into your writer headspace. You know, yeah. um, before lockdown, I was going really good guns. I was going out to a cafe every day and doing my regular... Uh, I would do three or four hours there. And then I'd come home and I, I had a really nice rhythm going. And then suddenly your my rhythm was just explode you know the you know it all just mm. went overnight and so it took quite a, a while to find a new way of doing things and um it, it's it's a, it's a funny one because you, you you kind of assume that it wouldn't have this effect but it just has it was a very distracting time and it was very hard to think about making up characters making up situations and it wasn't though the situations or characters were were irrelevant by any means but just just it was just difficult to do the job of writing I Mike, listen, if it makes you feel any better michael connolly told us it, it, it was the lockdown was the first time since he'd graduated that he went six weeks without writing so you're right. not on your own 
well, Michael Connolly is, is, you know, is a rising monolith. So <laughs> if he can't do it, then, then we're, we're all doing all right. And I think, exactly, yeah. I, th I think it was just a very distracting time. I think it was a difficult time mm. to be thinking about. Also, I, I felt for so many, so many people were having their, you know, so, so many debut authors uh, had their books published and to affect no audience because there were no bookshops. And so many people mm -hmm. had, were having their, their books moved left, right and centre. And we weren't really sure when books were, bookshops were going to be open. And then Amazon was sort of saying, well, books aren't essential, so we're going to reduce our uh, amount of stock. So it, 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 it was a, a, a difficult time and, yes, very distracting, very distracting. Yeah, I hear you. Um, well, on that, though, let's get some of your recommendations then of what other things we should be reading, do you think? So, um, well, one of those books that came out that you might have missed because it came out in the middle of uh, a global pandemic was The Authenticity Project um, by Claire Publi. Um, this is a really lovely, uh, uplifting book um, about um, an elderly guy who decides to um, write a, no a notebook, write about his... His, his truth about his life and then he leaves it for other people to find and to write their truths in and it's about making connections with people and it's just a really lovely book so the authenticity project by claire pooley um and then um i think she's been on your show beth o'leary um she has which, um this is her second book she's the um author of what was her first one it's called flat share and this is her second one and she's a really lovely book really funny very sweet um about um a granddaughter and a daughter um a, a granddaughter and a, a grandmother who swap places and and she the grandmother ends up living in um moving to happening Shoreditch and she ends up moving the younger woman ends up moving um, up north to live in their grand, uh, grandmother's place and um, again this is a really good read and my yeah, we loved chatting to Beth didn't we uh, oh, she's, I think yeah, lovely. she's yeah. a couple of episodes ago really good and uh, the final book I want to recommend is um, Lie, Lie With Me by Sabrine Durant um, and this is a sort of a, a psychological thriller type thing but well, it, well it's not really a psychological thing but it, it's gripping and um it's got what well, it's got a really brilliant anti-hero in it and um like she's he's such an interesting character and it's about a guy who ends up going on holiday with a with a family and he's a little bit sleazy um but it doesn't go right for him at all and it, it's a very good book Lie with me by sabine durant Excellent. Ooh, excellent. Uh, I tell you what else is a very, very good book. All the Lonely People by Mike Gale. Yes, it's really, really, <laughs> honestly, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed uh, reading this book. And um, I really, it felt to me like the equivalent of watching a comedy drama that you just can't wait for the next episode of. That's how it felt. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank so you. Congratulations, Mike. And um, thanks for talking to us on bestsellers. And thanks for giving us such lovely, warm entertainment through this horrible lockdown period. Thank you. My pleasure. You know what? I think that's the first time that we've had somebody we've interviewed who's recommended in their book recommendations another person that we've had on bestsellers, uh, I think. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Now you've got me thinking. I'm trying to think if anyone else has done it. I think. So people have recommended books that we've both read, but not where we've had them on, I don't think. I think you're right. Yeah, and I know, like, in the back of my head, so many days at the moment, I keep thinking, I really need to get that list together of all of these recommendations and put them somewhere mm. useful so that people can refer to it. Because, you know, people might have a bit more time off over the summer or more of an inclination to read. And there's such a wealth of good books that I think all these people have been telling us about. Agree. And I didn't know if that was code for. You still haven't done that website, Williams. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't code at all. Oh, that's good. It was that's good. just, it's, and I don't think it's all your responsibility either. Um, I was thinking as well, and partly it's because I want to read some of these books too. So um, I will go and do that work. Promise, okay. Governor. Um, well, yes, we are both responsible for that. I feel they can just hear the guilt. It's awful. All the Lonely People is beautiful, though. It's a really, really lovely book uh, by Mike Gale, and we wholeheartedly recommend that. And actually, in the current climate, where I think we've both struggled to read. I certainly for the first part of lockdown, I just got pissed mm -hmm. all the time. I wasn't working. I <laughs> just you? literally got tanked up. <laughs> I was doing lunch for the family at one and I was saying to the missus, Rose? <laughs> 
nice well yeah or but also not good when it goes on for too long I know I was the opposite and I am aware that this is an incredibly fortunate position to have been in that I was working the whole time uh during lockdown and still am um and obviously I'm not doing a frontline job but uh, able to work from home but still I was sort of the opposite end and just ridiculously stressed and overworked and mm. tired and because of that my brain couldn't take any more mm. yeah and there comes a time then doesn't there where just before bed instead of reading something even though you know that reading will be good for you you just maybe want to stare at some mindless shite on the telly or something yeah I did a bit of that or I fall back on my old favorite of staring at a cookbook oh uh, okay right yeah. yeah look at the pretty pictures of all the food <laughs> Do you find if you, do, like- <laughs> if you do that late at night, didn't it just not make you hungry? No, but I, that would just make me think. I think actually cookbooks are kind of an acceptable, not that I have any kind of um, judgment on this at all anyway, but like an acceptable picture book for adults, you know? Do you know so who it's kind of like words and pictures. I'm, I'm just looking up to make sure I get the right film, but more and more now you are reminding me in these chats at the end of the episodes <laughs> of Meryl Streep's character in It's Complicated. Have you seen that movie? Yeah, I have. Yeah. And it's it's when she has a romantic issue in the film and gets up at like one in the morning to make pan au chocolat. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. And I've got this I image do. of you now, not with romantic issues, just to be clear, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Jameson, but more like with your busy brain and you read these cookbooks yeah. and just as one eye is closing, the other eye goes, go and bake, Nat, go and bake. <laughs> What what often tends to happen is I don't I probably don't get up and do late night baking, but I do start to scribble lists and ideas on various post-its at random times of the night and then kind of wake up in the morning and go, What was that? <laughs> what was I planning to do there? Okay. So yeah. Well, more insights into the world of Matthew Jameson and more great authors <laughs> next time on this yeah, like, I just don't learn why do I keep telling so much about myself that I think I've managed to kind of suppress quite well from the world at large until this point anyway anyway <laughs>